Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Today we're going to be going into what will be the last episode of this season. Um, But as I said in the last episodes, um, next season will be starting right away. So even though this is ending season one, we will be going right into season two. I did want to break this up a little bit so that the seasons are a little more uh, connected to each other. Uh, And I think going up into the modern period... uh, is, is enough for season one. We did touch on the 20th and 21st century a little bit, uh, but season two is really going to need to go much more in depth on the more modern philosophers, uh, the 19th, 20th, and 21st century philosophers, and the 20th and 21st century literary writers and traditions. So I'm going to keep that into all season two. Um, but I do want to end season one with talking about Immanuel Kant. Um, Kant is a figure like um, Plato, who is someone who really changes the flow of the discussions in philosophy and Western philosophy afterwards. Uh, After Plato, everything in Western philosophy is sort of a response to Plato. Uh, After Kant, everything in the more contemporary philosophy tends to be responses and refutings of Kant, but he changes the the direction and takes it in a little bit different direction, and I want to talk about that today. But first, I want to talk about a little bit of how Kant saw the tradition of philosophy as it had been going up to that point. Now, he saw two big issues in philosophy. One had to do with the kind of structure of reality, and Kant sort of... uh, sees two main writers as being representatives of each side. You have Leibniz, who is, um, in his mind, representative of the uh, idealists, the, the, the philosophers who believe that reality is based on uh, the mind, that it comes from there. Um, the other side is the empiricists, and Newton is the, is the main one in the empiricists that at the start, Kant is reacting to. Now, just to go into Leibniz and Newton a little bit, uh, Newton, um, basically, I don't have to go into too much. He's one of the people who finds the laws of planetary motion, uh, discusses the way gravity works, uh, things like this. He is dealing with uh, physical objects in space. much of the way that physics views reality, much of the way that the physical sciences do. Uh, we, we view objects as being things that are contained within space, things that operate by the laws of physics on each other. Uh, Leibniz has a very different view. As an idealist, he sees everything is in the world of ideas. And Leibniz believes that everything is made up of what are known as monads. Um, his monads are kind of difficult to explain. I've, I've kind of skipped over Leibniz, and we will come back to him in future seasons. Um, it, it's a little difficult to picture his, uh, his idea of the monads. Basically, all of, all of matter, all of space, and all of time are made up of the monads. And the monads are basically what composes everything and nothing at the same time. But Leibniz does not believe the monads are able to interact with each other. 
So within the monad, each monad is basically the entire universe that's outside of it as well. So everything that you see, uh, according to Leibniz, isn't actually out there. It's all inside of you. Um, and Leibniz sees that, uh, states that the reason we can trust it is that God wouldn't allow us to be seeing on the inside something that is contrary to what's on the outside. So Leibniz's philosophy is very much based on the idea of God being this being that guarantees what we're seeing is real. But we don't interact with any of that stuff. All of it, we are each monads and every, as is everything else. And it's only an illusion that we interact with other things. Um, we are actually just... <clears throat> Uh, we contain all of those things within ourselves, so we're only interacting within our own monad. Um, and Kant is really someone who grew up on Leibniz and, and was as sort of a devotee for a while. Uh, so th one of the things that he wants to do is kind of reconcile these two points of view. You know, how do you reconcile uh, Leibniz's view of reality with Newton's view of reality. And I'll go into that in a little bit. The other thing I want to go into first is the two theories of knowledge that Kant sees as um, being uh, in control of philosophy and what philosophy revolves around. One of them is rationalism and the other is empiricism. Now as I've already mentioned, Leibniz would be one that would fall under the rationalist uh, side. Also, Descartes would fall under that side. Um, they believe that all knowledge is innate and comes from reason. On the other side, in the empiricist side, you have the people who believe that all knowledge comes from the external world and our interactions with the external world. So we have Locke and Hume that we've already talked about, and we also have Barclay. And Barclay's another one that I skipped over, but we will be coming back to Barclay. Uh, Barclay is, a lot of people, when you think about him, you would think he would fall under the rationalist, but he's actually an empiricist. Um, Barclay is the one who's famous for the line, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? Well, he answers that question by saying, no, it does not make a sound if no one hears it. Because he goes on to then talk about the fact that sound is simply the, the uh, changing of vibrations in the air to something that is intelligible in the human ear and in the human mind. So in order for it to actually be sound, it has to be perceived. Otherwise, it's just vibrations. <clears throat> And he also goes on to talk about, as Descartes did and a lot of the others did, how all of our senses could be doubted. You know, you can doubt that uh, uh, you're seeing what you're seeing is the color red because if you change the light, now the color changes. Uh, you can doubt that the uh, table you're looking at is brown because, again, if the light changes, parts of the t uh, table might look white from the light reflecting off of it. Um, if you take two hands and get one of them, one of your hands really warm and get one of your hands really cold and plunge them into the same temperature water, the water will feel cold to the one hand and warm to the other. 
So Barclay is one that believes that the senses are all able to be fooled. And you would think that that would get him to where he would be a rationalist and believe that it's all just ideas, um, which he does somewhat get to that point. But he, like Leibniz, also believes that God is the thing that um, is the guarantee that these things are actually there. They're actually out there and not just in our minds. He doesn't believe God to be a deceiver and therefore the things that we perceive, even though we can be wrong about them, we can um, at least be assured that the objects are out there and they're what we're basing our knowledge off of. So Kant tries to bring all of this together. He wants to reconcile it. And one of the things that he sees is that they're both caught up in their own view of personal reality. Um, and he believes that um, both of them, the, uh, you know, the rationalists and the empiricists and Leibniz and um, uh, Locke, I'm sorry, not Locke, um, Leibniz and, oh God, Leibniz and Newton, I'm sorry, my brain is frazzled at the moment, um, that they are all right, but just right from different perspectives. And once they get over that, they'll see that the, um, you know, that they've all sort of got a part of it. So he goes with wanting to reconcile this. And as he starts into this, he realizes that the rationalists run into a problem because if you can't ever know anything outside of the mind, if all of the knowledge is just in the mind and nowhere else, then you can never trust that anything out there is real. Um, and so he sort of leans towards empiricists for a little while, and then he reads Hume, and Hume, you know, sort of brings doubt about the whole fact of just because we see it um, doesn't mean we can ever understand the mechanisms underneath it. Uh, so he, he starts to see there's trouble in both areas. And one of the things that Kant wants to do is bring this all back together so that it all makes sense. And so he shifts his focus um, from, you know, being a rationalist or an empiricist to thinking about, well, there's two parts of reality. There's phenomena, which is what we, is how we uh uh, live in the world. It's how we experience the world, what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we feel. Uh, so there's phenomena, and then there's the noumena, which is the things as they are in themselves. And Kant kind of pushes aside the fact that we could ever get to understand the noumena. He's like, this is just, it, it's outside of our, uh, of our realm, of, of, of our abilities. So building on what some of the earlier uh, philosophers have done, he, he does start, you know, looking at our uh, philosophy through the lens of um, how our mind works, how our mind perceives things, how our mind puts things together. And he's, he wants to say that the uh, way of knowing the world is through reason, which reason is a combination of sort of taking in these inputs from the outside world and then processing them through our brains and using um, sort of our perception as not being the perception that explains everything, 
but trying to get it to be more and more concrete, more and more uh, something that has a better grasp on reality. Even though he believes that that ultimate knowing the things in themselves are just outside of us. So this shift that later philosophers go with is really a shift that is about changing from how do we know the world around us? Is it you know through empiricism or are these innate ideas? And he develops it more of, well, we know it more because of what types of beings we are. And he shifts it more towards human perspectives about reality. You know, the only thing we can legitimately study are our own perspectives about reality because we don't have access to those other things. But he does borrow from both sides. <clears throat> he does look at mathematical truths as being things that are true regardless of who perceives them. You know, 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's true no matter who perceives that, that statement. It's something that's a universal truth. It's a rational truth. And so what he's trying to get at are the rational truths that make up the way we interact with the world. Now, he also wants to apply this to ethics. Uh, one of the things that Kant wants to do is if we can know mathematics through rational thought, if we can you know, process our stimulus about the rest of the world through rational thought, we should be able to do the same thing for ethics. And... Kant comes up with what's known as the categorical imperative, what he calls the categorical imperative. And there's a few steps that he uses to get to this. He doesn't just jump to this imperative. First, he starts with the belief that there is a moral law, that it is something that is definite, the same way mathematics is definite. So he's founding this on a belief that there are things that are morally right and are morally wrong. <clears throat> Then he looks at it from, we have a duty. Um, things that are done, uh, things should be done out of duty. Uh, it should be your duty to do what is morally right. Uh, it should be your duty to avoid what is morally wrong. This is what makes an action moral, is, is your commitment to it through duty. If you do it because you're forced to do it, um, then it doesn't have any moral standing. If I force you to do what you're supposed to, then you didn't really make a moral choice. You had no choice. You did it because you had to. Um, so the, the, you have to do what you do out of sense of duty. Um, you also can't do it based on a sense of you will gain something. So if you are kind to people because you want to be looked at favorably or because you want a heavenly reward or anything like that, your act is no longer a moral act. It's no longer a morally good act because you did it by treating other people as a means to an end you wanted. And one of the things about uh, his uh, categorical imperative is that you can never treat other people as merely a means. Um, people must be thought of as ends in themselves. Uh, if, if I'm only nice to someone because I'm going to get a benefit out of it, then all of the goodness and morality of that kind of goes out the window because I've treated them as 
something to just get me what I want. If I lie to people to get what I want, if I threaten people to get what I want, even if it's, you know, something good, there is no moral, uh, moral value to that uh, because I haven't treated them as they are a, an individual uh, that is a moral agent of their own. You know, fooling people, conning people, threatening people, even if you're doing it to get them to do something right, uh, to get them to do something good is not a moral act because you have stripped away their ability to make their own moral choices. He also believes that part of what must be behind the categorical imperative is you must have a, uh, a will to do something. It's, it's your will to do uh, good that makes something morally valuable. It's not the outcome. Um, the outcome is completely irrelevant to Kant. If you are doing something because you are trying to uh, help somebody, if you're trying to make, you know, save somebody, let's say you try to save somebody from drowning and you fail, they drown anyways, you still were morally good because your will was to try to save them. The fact that you failed is completely irrelevant. Now, some of the other moral theories that will come along later, and some that were even earlier, would base the outcome, or the morality of an action on the outcome. Well, the person died anyway, so your, your action had no moral value. Kant would deny that. Kant would say, no, the fact that your will was good, and that you were, you know, trying to do good, uh, the outcome of it is irrelevant. And... Since this is, you know, morals are what he sees as their absolute rights, uh, rights as in things that are correct, things that are right, things that are moral, um, he believes that you have a necessity to do these things. And he actually believes that doing and, and, and says that doing these things actually are what help make you freer because you become a moral agent for good. So when you do good things, um, you become basically part of uh, what moves things forward. You know, he, he thinks of it like this. Following the, the moral imperative is, uh, is something that is a benefit uh, because you can get to the good and you can get more good out of it. He compares it to swimming with the stream as opposed to swimming against the stream. Now, all of this he kind of distills into the, the statement that, um, basically, to paraphrase, uh, you should only uh, do things that you would make a, uh, a, a kind of a rule for everyone. If you won't make this a rule for everyone, this, this rule, it does not fit under the categorical imperative. Uh, for example, lying. If, if you look at lying and you think it's a bad thing uh, or you think it's a good thing, you know, you have to ask yourself not about the particular situation, if it's good in this particular situation, but would this be good if everyone did this all the time? You know, that's, that's kind of what he's going for, is if you can't make this a, a moral law that applies to everyone, um, then you shouldn't do it. Uh, it's it's not something that is uh, 
something that should be uh, considered a moral act. Uh, he does get into a lot of, there are a lot of people that challenge this, like, for example, the uh, example about lying. Uh, there has been brought up the argument, well, what if an axe murderer is chasing your friend and you know where your friend is, and the axe murderer says, do you know where your friend is? I want to kill them. Um, should you lie? And, and basically the answer to that question is no, because lying is not something you should want everyone to do. Um, he does have some uh, backtracking on that, not that he says you shouldn't lie, but sort of saying, well, if you lie and then your friend, you know, the, the axe murderer is still standing out the door, at the door, and your friend tries to escape and runs around the front of the house and runs into the axe murderer, now you're partially responsible for that, your friend's murder as well. But if you say, no, the friend's in the house and the axe murderer goes in there and your friend had run away, then your friend got away and you don't have any responsible. Or if they didn't run away, you still don't have any responsibility, which is kind of, it's a really tough sell with a lot of his categorical imperative. But you remember, when it comes to ethics, there's always been sort of this desire to build a firm ethics, one that is not um, something that, well, we might do it or we might not do it. And, and Kant even addresses this. You know, he, he talks about the difference between a categorical imperative and a, um, you know, a hypothetical imperative. A hypothetical imperative is something that you may benefit, you may not benefit from, might be something that would be good in circumstances, not in others. Uh, that type of those types of decisions are not ones that, that Kant sees as truly moral, uh, ethical behaviors. Uh, it has to be something that follows sort of the steps that he went through. Okay, I'm going to wrap up with Kant for there. Uh, we will be moving forward with the next season. Uh, I will be starting season two with literature, and I'm going to go into the modernist period. And I'm going to probably do... Um, a f maybe a couple of episodes on the modernist because I think that you really need to do when you do the modernist they're, they're a pretty diverse group and you really need to do a section on poetry and a section on prose with the modernist so I'm, I'm probably going to do a couple of lectures on those and then when we move into the philosophy I'm probably going to go into Hegel first um, because Hegel is really someone who uh, has a lot of influences on later philosophers as well. Uh, one of them that he has a lot of influence on is Marx. So we're going to probably do Hegel first for the philosophers. We're going to do the modernists first for the literature. Okay, I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.